You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have a guest, well, a returning guest, but not on the podcast. This is the first time that Sarah has been on the podcast, and I am delighted to have her. She was on two of the Be the Best Parent You Can Be uh, Summit, uh, what, three or four years ago. And so I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you, Sarah, today. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. So I always like to start with, how do you define the art of parenting? Ooh, mm, I love that because I feel like I always consider parenting an art and a science um, because we do know a lot about child development and the brain. But the art part, I think, is, you know, heart based, right? Like it's getting a little bit out of your head where you might be reading studies or learning the science of, um, you know, how our how our brains, the latest of what we know about how our brains work. But I consider the art part of the heart and and kind of dropping into the connection that we have with other humans, including children that we might be raising. Um, so I think of it as more of a kind of dance between hearts um, and about connection. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and it is so true that it is about the heart. And you actually wrote a beautiful book called Raising Human with Heart. And for me, that was a wonderful kind of manifesto to 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 parenting, right? It's not you. You say your your subtitle is not a how to manual, and it really was about kind of all of these different aspects of us to reconsider, uh, so that we can create our, our own manual. And we'll have time to talk about that, but. First, uh, I wanted, uh, before we get too involved, if you wouldn't mind sharing for the listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that motivates me to do the work that I do, and you know, my background, I kind of started off as a toddler and early childhood teacher, and then moved into social work, and then, you know, into parent education, it's been kind of an evolution. Um, but at the heart of that is always really advocacy for children, and um, trying to create a world that offers conditions for the best possible outcomes for children. And I think part of that is rooted in the fact that I have a very good memory of being small. Um, and I think a lot of people don't don't have great memories. I mean, and that seems to be my sort of, uh, just from talking to people, a lot of people don't remember being young and being small. And I, I have a lot of memories of, of growing up. And so I 
I have a lot, a, a lot of deep empathy for being small and not being in charge. And, you know, so I think that that informs my, my view of parenting and caregiving in general, and really wanting to create the conditions that are going to allow children to thrive. Mm, Beautiful. That's interesting how you say uh, memories of our childhood and how few people. And and for me, I went to, well, because our childhood was traumatizing, we forget. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's a little bit true. um, But I like to hope that it's getting better as we learn more about about humans, right? Like human development is a field that is continuing to grow and evolve. And we have science. That's why as I mentioned the science, you know, we have uh, fMRIs that allow scientists to see into people's brains and what they're doing. Um, We know more about the brain now than we ever have. And what is going to, um, you know, allow for optimal development, or I don't think we're there yet. But I, I think we're all a lot of people are continuing to work on it. Definitely. I mean, we have made immense progress with with understanding. And now it's taking action on what we understand, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, no better, do better, right? Exactly, exactly. And so sometimes you, you, you talk about developmentally appropriate expectations of children. What like, when we're when we're talking maybe the first three years, right? I mean, I have, you know, I have my Montessori background that really informs us that children before three are these unconscious learners, right? That they're just driven by this life force and and best to just get out of the way and 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 be be of support. But um how how would you define that? And and for for parents listening who do have, you know, young children, what would you say to them? Yeah. So Developmentally appropriate practice is something that preschool teachers and toddler teachers learn, right? Like how to set up your environment in a way that's going to get out of their way. I love that. Um, I work for an organization called Zero to Three as my my day job. And um, I write their parenting content for a program called Healthy Steps. And our parenting department at Zero to Three did a survey. They did two surveys, one in 2019 2018 and one in 2015. Um, And one of the things that came out of that first survey was, you know, of of 2000 parents that were interviewed, um, there was a huge, what they called an expectation gap around what parents thought kids of certain ages should be able to do and what, you know, human development specialists and scientists know, think that children can do. Um, So sort of like there was a gap between reality and expectation. And that is such a important thing to know, because then, you know, parent educators like you and me, um, and, and organizations like zero to three can help get parents the information they need, so that they can not be so frustrated with their child's behavior. Because there are things that that development wise, just kind of unfold. Like I use the example of walking when I try to explain this to parents, like you wouldn't try to get a six month old to walk. Like it just wouldn't even occur to you because that is something that parents do have good knowledge of that those physical skills kind of how they unfold, but parents have less information and understanding about how emotional, social, emotional skills unfold. So things like 
sharing or being able to control your impulses or being able to delay gratification without a huge emotional meltdown. Like all of those are things that are social emotional skills and social emotional milestones really. But parents think that kids are going to reach them before they do. And then they get really frustrated that their two-year-old is incapable of sharing, which many two-year-olds are. So I think it's just an important thing to think about that that, that they are unfolding, their development is unfolding, and their capabilities are unfolding. And in some ways, we want to hurry them along. Um, and in other ways, like you said, they just, they they take off and do their own thing. And and it's a, it's a bit of a trust issue, I guess, is what it's coming down to, that helping parents understand so that they can trust that their child's social and emotional and social skills Um, are going to unfold and it will be okay and that it might be loud and messy for those first few years but that that's because that child is learning so many other things at the same time it's the most rapid period of brain development it is it is I mean when you think of you know them like you said they need to learn to walk they need to learn to talk there's there's just so much going on and all this is done you know in like in total secrecy in a way in their in their absorbent mind. So it's fascinating. I'm just fascinated with with babies and in young humans how you know how much they can learn. You mentioned one of the expectations that parents have is this notion of sharing. Mm-hmm. And that can be a hot topic sometimes. <laughs> and so I would love if we could unpack that and really, you know, explain to parents who might be listening, why should you not expect your young child to share? Right. Well, it's kind of, I have similar feelings about sharing as I have about apologies in that when they're forced, they're not authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, So when, if you, I mean, I also like ask adults to put themselves in their child's shoes, like, and I kind of do a little wink and nod, like sharing is overrated though, right? Like, (laughs) think about it. If you, you know, go get yourself a latte and then I like pull up next to you at the park because we're having a a meetup and I'm like, oh, can I have some of your latte? Like, you know, you might say, mm, no, it's mine, right? <laughs> like, you know, or can I have that purse you bought? It's really pretty. Like, I want to, I want to borrow it. You know, it's just, there's, there's a certain, um, I think that the desire to get kids to share is rooted in an, a, you know, an altruistic, you know, positive place where adults want their children to grow up to be, you know, giving people, right, who have empathy and are not going to be greedy and all of this sort of perspective that we have on it. But again, if we trust the child's timeline that it will unfold, um, and there's fascinating studies about empathy that that are done with the youngest of children, um, you know, under a year old, where they show videos, and then the the child, these little babies, like try to help characters on a screen. Like it's it's fascinating and um, hopeful, right? That that even babies can have empathy. There's other studies where you know babies start to cry in response to other babies, and just I think that's information that parents don't have and they worry, right? Like wanting your child to share before they're ready is rooted in a worry that they're not going to ever want to share. And then they're not going to ever have friends. And then, and then, and then, and then, and it's just like projecting way out into the future. And this could happen about a million different things that children do that worry us. But I think some of those 
interpersonal skills like um, sharing and apologies are particular trigger points. Yeah. And and what would be like a an expectation, a realistic expectation for that uh, for children? Like what, you know, what what's the average age where you can expect a child to to just share on their own? Yeah. Well, I think that there's some scaffolding that can happen. Um, and so I've worked with all children, you know, in early childhood from babies to, you know, kindergarten. And my approach and many, many other wonderful teachers and educators that I worked with over the years have kind of agreed to emphasize on what the child is able to do in the moment, like, and having a boundary, right? And adult enforced boundaries are perfectly fair, but with a focus on taking turns instead of sharing, right? Um, That's something that younger children can kind of grasp that they're going to get a turn and then maybe their friend or sibling is going to get a turn. Um, Sometimes timers can be helpful in that situation so that children, um, you know, know how long there's some indicator of how long they're going to have to wait for a turn. Um, Then, then our next step was always to kind of not use a timer and let a child know that they could have a turn that was as long as they wanted, but that then X person wanted to use it when they were done. And that would give them an opportunity to really have as long of a turn as they wanted. Um, just a, a place to experiment like turns, long turns. Um, then they you know, then you, you kind of are building a child's capacity to learn how to share. Because I think that like naturally, like, the less pressure that you put on a child, like a two-year-old might decide to share if if they're not pressured, but pressure is never going to help that situation. Right, right. And I've seen it like in, in you know, young children, toddlers, they they will gladly give up what they're working on or, or you know, toy or whatever. But it's that pressure that we put on them, like you have to share. And that is kind of uh, not really good consent work. I feel like, like, you know, feeling obligated to, to share when, no, I don't feel like it right now. Like, why are you pressuring me to do that? Um, but again, is there like in your knowledge, is there, um, an average age where we can expect a child to just easily share without, you know, without pressure. I mean, not that we should ever pressure them to do so, but but when can when can a, I guess when can a parent expect to to see that in their child? Like emerging, I would probably say about four. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, I would say about four. I, I love what you said about consent too. It's it's because it made me think of boundaries and how it's really teaching the wrong thing about boundaries when we are always applying that pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. And then you 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 talk um, also. I know in your book about emotional competence. Um, what how, could you define that for our listeners and and maybe share a little bit more again what to to expect? Yeah. Sure. Um, so emotional competence, I believe, is um, I got that term from um, Gabor Mate's book, um, one of his books, he's written several. And um, it was sort of an upgrade for me from the little bit more understood term emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. which is they're, they're probably largely interchangeable. Um, but it just means, you know, c- 
capacity and ability around around your emotional life, which we all, all humans have emotions. But I like the word competence because it, it, um, it infers like capacity and capability. And my, my feeling about feelings is that, you know, all feelings are welcome, all feelings are acceptable. And it is the actions that sometimes our feelings drive us towards um, that we that we engage in in reaction to our emotions that can be problematic. And that's where, you know, appropriate boundaries and limits and structure are needed for young children. But there's often um, or there there has historically been sort of a, you know, and stop crying that comes along with the no, right? Like the no, the no is the no. And you know, sometimes it's a no when you want to do something. And and whether you're four or 40, that might be frustrating, right? Not getting what you want or being told no or having a limit um, is something that can spark feelings of anger, frustration, sadness, grief. Um, And those are just feelings that are completely fine to have. And I think that when my experience has been when we can make space for young people to have their feelings and work through their feelings, then they build capacity to not be reactive around their feelings, right? That they can get through their feelings, that they're not afraid of their feelings. Um, I can't tell you how many adult people have said to me, I'm afraid if I start crying, I won't stop. Hmm. And I think that that's indicative of how they were, how emotions were perhaps handled when they were young, um, because we are anxious and nervous about having our feelings. Um, and this is not to, you know, um, rule out like situational awareness or that you might not burst into tears at every little thing while you're at work. Like, and part of that is, is again, adult fear about um, emotional immaturity in children, right? Like we worry that if they don't ever learn to suck it up, they will be bursting into tears at work, you know, every day when they get frustrated. But as we know, humans mature over time, it just takes time. And, and part of being with them when they're in their feelings, I think helps them integrate that, ability and carry it into adulthood in a positive way. The, the title of my book, um, the, ti- the title of the chapter in my book is called Emotional Competence is Not a Soft Skill, because I feel like it gets kind of relegated as like, oh, it's not that important. But, you know, we, we don't know what kind of jobs preschoolers today are going to have in 25 years. They, they're going to probably need to cooperate. This is along the lines of everything you need to know you learned in kindergarten. Um, they're probably going to need to com- communication skills, cooperation skills, conflict resolution skills, emotional competence, like all of those, quote, soft skills are the ones you can count on people needing in their work. Exactly, exactly. And how, how you know, for, for parents listening that have young children, like, what would you say is the go to to really be able to help our children have that emotional competency, like to be, to be with their feelings? Because as as you mentioned, you know, oftentimes, we're, we're told to, oh, you know, it's not such a big deal, or stop crying, or, you know, whatever. And so we're, we're kind of, you know, told not to have those emotions. When you and I know that that you know 
having emotions, being able to have that self-awareness, where it's coming from, how to deal with it and all that does take skills. So how do parents of today's children help them get there? Right. Well, the first piece is is sort of a double duty situation because a lot of adults did not have caregivers who were able to be with them when they were in a full range of feelings, right? And because we as adults receive messages about tamping down, you know, certain types of feelings or or stopping crying, you know, because it was upsetting people, um, we have you know, anxiety or upset that comes when we start to see those feelings in our are ch- in our children. I, I don't know if you're familiar with circle of security parenting, but it's one of the one of the curriculum trained in, and they talk about that anxiety that comes up when we have see a child having a feeling that you know gives us pause as sh- like shark music, like Donna uh, Donna from Jaws. Like it just kind of creeps in. You're like, ah, what? what do I do with this kid that won't stop crying? And like, how do I respond? And what do I say? And that, that kind of dysregulation is partly old, right? So, so the first step is kind of identifying that you have some places that need to be tended to within your own self in in order to regulate your emotions. Because the thing that a child who's dysregulated in their emotions doesn't need is an adult that's dysregulated in their emotions too, right? Like that's a recipe for disaster, but that's a, a place I found myself in that very place with a toddler. And I had a lot of experience with toddlers, but I still, when I had my own toddler, had a different response. And it was a much more like shark music response. One of the things I say in the intro to my book is that we all come to parenting with a parenting manual and whether or not we're aware of it. And it's the parenting manual of the parenting we received. And so partly it's unpacking that and being conscious and aware and and being with whatever feelings come up for that, Um, you know, getting listening. I think parents need to have their own listening in in order to be able to listen to children when they are in their emotions. So it's kind of like a twofold piece of like figuring out how you're going to stay regulated, emotionally regulated in those situations when children are really, you know, flipping their lid, as Dan Siegel would say. Because for young children, the way that they learn regulation is through that co-regulation of being near and with a calm, steady adult who is, you know, kind of nonplussed about their big feelings. But if you are not feeling nonplussed, um, I have a friend who says you can't fake calm and you really can't fake calm. Like your nervous system is going to be activated and your young child is going to know it. Even if you aren't verbalizing that stress, it is coming through in your body language and your tone of voice. And so step number one is just to kind of take an inventory around those pieces. Like if you are getting stressed when your young child is having big feelings, you know, there's some attention that needs to be given to that unpacking and processing piece before you can be calm with a child who's upset. Right, right. And and it's fascinating what you're saying, because it, you know, it always comes back to us, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not the child who, you know, who needs redirection or, or, or things. It's really us that need to observe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that said, redirection is a useful tool, but it will lose its steam if you never allow the child to have their feelings and offload that or you know, let it out. Um, 
I often ask, you know, like a lot of people will relate to the fact that you feel better after you have a good cry, right? Like, right. And the kids are the same way. They get emotionally constipated and they need to let it out. And, and partly just knowing that if you, if, I mean, I, once I learned that that was a thing, I was like, oh, I actually really believe this. And then I could get behind it and I could keep myself calm. And, and sometimes I did have to have those internal mantras of like, everyone is safe because that shark music music tells us we're not safe. It, 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 like this screaming tantruming child. And for me, it was a time thing. Like I had handled many a tantrum by the time I had my own toddler, but I always redirect. I was in a classroom situation. So you had to redirect, redirect kids. And you, you know, you didn't let them have a 45 minute tantrum. That just wasn't reasonable in a, a classroom setting. But my kid needed to have a 45 minute tantrum. And I kept cutting him off at 15 or 20 because I would become so stressed. I would be like, something is really wrong. And part of it was like, I just kept thinking something is wrong that he needs to keep crying. Like, and then I kept, I kept shutting it down, redirecting, distracting, like all of those things that are useful tools, but not if your goal is to help your child get through all the way through the emotion. And part of what children learn if we give them the space to get all the way through the emotion, and there's some interesting books written for adults about burnout, about how you need to get all the way through the emotion, which I find fascinating um, because it absolutely applies to young children too, is when we are able to keep ourselves calm and and soothed and like reminding ourselves that it's not an emergency. Everyone is safe. They're just crying. I've made sure that there's no physical thing wrong. It's emotions that need to come out. And if you, and it's the first time we stuck with my child through almost an hour long tantrum, he was like transformed at the end of that hour. And he never had a tantrum that long ever again. And I don't, I don't, it doesn't even matter what it was about, right? Like it was something that he needed to let out. And once he had let it out, it also sent he, that experience, sent him a message that he could tolerate a really long, strong bout of a um, quote negative emotion. And then he was able to re-regulate after that. And it was it's a learning experience, I think, is what I'm getting at here. Like you learn something from that, that you aren't going to start crying and never stop. You are going to stop and that you can trust yourself in your body with your emotions. And I think that that's an important learning to take forward as children grow, if we can give them that when they're really young. And they're, they cry so easily when they're young, right? Like, And that that's stress relieving and that we can actually consider that something that's positive to their emotional competence. So when so when a child is having a full-blown tantrum and you're maybe feeling uneasy, it's it's you know triggering some things in you, you are still the adult in the room. So you need to find a way to self-regulate so that you can just be there for that child because you don't necessarily want them to change what they're doing, but you want them to have this notion that they can trust you and that they can navigate through these big emotions. But what would you say to the adult who's like, I can't handle that? Like an hour, an hour tantrum, like you're crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say when you said triggered, it's like, well, if you're actually, if you're triggered, it doesn't work. 
right? Like if you're gritting your teeth and just like faking it, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So what do you, so what do you do in that case? Do you just walk away and say, you're safe? I'm, I'll be right back. Or do you? Yeah. I mean, I think that if you, if you can make it a goal to try to, again, do that inner work to, um, and, you know, hand in hand parenting has this really nice model of, of getting listening with another adult. Like, if you're going to sit with a child and be with them when they're fully in their feelings, they call that stay listening. But you really can't stay listen with a child to the full degree that they need that listening unless you're getting listening yourself, right? Unless unless you have somebody to talk to about how utterly triggering and frustrating it is and kind of offload all your feelings about it. That is a way to actually build your bandwidth and capacity. It's sort of like I consider it kind of like bodybuilding. Like, I don't know if I made up that metaphor or got it from somebody else, but like, it's like weightlifting to be able to be with a child when they're in this huge emotional mess and you're supposed to stay regulated. Like you're saying, like, I can't do it. Like, that's how I felt at the beginning. I can't do it. Um, But I had to have other tools in place and other supports in, in place and remember that I couldn't like fill from an empty cup and that I had to keep myself in good shape. Like you had to get more listening, had to get more therapy, had to get more like all of the things that are going to build my capacity so that I could show up in the way that was, I could, I thought was needed for my child. But I also some days, and this is not like every single day, if your child has a meltdown, you need to like drop everything and, and tune in and, and, you know, be unconditionally listening and affirming like that's needed sometimes. And sometimes we just can't do that. And, and that's where all of those other things that, that both of us mentioned, like diversion, distraction, um, you know, uh, redirection, like all of those are kind of like duct tape measures like that. Those emotions are still going to hang out in your child until they get an outlet, right? They might come out as behavior, right? And so this is the, this is where it becomes motivating to show up to do the emotional work with your child because it will calm their systems down and it will reduce some of the un desirable behaviors that you're seeing in your child because a lot sometimes or it could it possibly could I found that it did because sometimes those emotions that aren't getting an outlet are driving those behaviors right so from what I'm hearing you say is that it is for one most important to let our children go through that emotion and not try to tamper it or you know, change the subject or whatever. So when we can, when we can let them, we have the time, we have the, the, the energy, the mindset to be able to really let them go through it so that they can, you know, like you say, have a good cry and feel relieved afterwards. And then maybe we can talk about it, you know, for, for some of the more verbal children afterwards. Afterwards, yes. Yeah. When, when they are out completely out of that state because they they aren't going to be I mean and this is a another sort of like pitfall that we all fall into is we try to reason with a child who's already off the rails emotionally. Right. And and teach, right? We try to teach to a mind that's in an emotional or maybe even a flight or fight or flight state and they can't hear us, right? They can't retain any of the learning that we're trying to teach them because they're in a totally emotional state. And so all the teaching pieces need to come afterwards when their nervous system is regulated and they are in a place where they can hear what you're saying. 
Right. And also what I heard that is very important is to have your village, right? To have those people that can can listen and let you have a good cry because you're you're very annoyed by your child that you you don't quite understand and all of that and so so important. Absolutely. It's crucial. It it it's not, you know, raising children one person or even two people is not how we, you know, got here. <laughs> That's definitely not how we got here. So we're in an unusual and a bit unnatural position in the way that we parent our children, especially, I mean, I, I, in modern society, I'll say, I won't, I won't blame the U.S. I think it's more than that. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's where we're, you know, we're parenting in, in total isolation more and more, you know, even though we might feel more connected because there's, you know, all these, these digital ways to be connected, but it's not quite the same thing. I mean, it, it's great, but it's not quite the same thing. Do you feel that that is uh, evolving, like that, that we're becoming more aware of this need for community or that we're, we're stepping away from it further? I feel like um, people are being driven by their need to have a village. Like, yeah. even if that village is, you know, through somebody who, like I've done group coaching in the past, I'm not doing that at this time, but I know there's lots of parent educators who do, you know, online programs and you may even have one that I'm unaware I of. Do. I yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing where there's, there's just, you, you need to have people. I mean, I have a mom's group. I've been, we've been meeting for 12 years Wow. <laughs> um, wow. And, and we meet in person cause we're all local, but, but any, like any sounding board or, friend or group coaching or any of that that's helping support parents is so vital. Right, right. No, so, so important. And actually, I, I just met with a young mother yesterday, and she had a 10 month old and she's a, a military mom. So, you know, living on a base and, and, and was telling me, I asked her, you know, how are you doing? And she was saying she was having a hard time finding uh, adults to to be with, right? She was having a great time with her child, but she needed that support and was having a hard time finding it. So that's that can be oh, yeah. uh, definitely hard. There's there's one thing that you mentioned about um, you know you having been around toddlers and uh, them having you know tantrums and you were able to handle it, but then. But then for your own child, it's harder. Why is that? Because I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, I live the same situation. I hear I was, you know, uh, taking care of, you know, 25 other people's children. But then when I came home to my own, um, I tended to have less patience or, you know, got annoyed quicker and all that. Why is that? Well, I mean, here's my working theory. My working theory is that it's it's not personal when it's other people's kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just so much more personal when it's your own child and all of the, and it's about, I mean, the other word that comes to mind, we were talking about it with regards to kids, but I think it absolutely applies to parents and caregivers is the pressure. Like we feel the pressure to like do it right. Especially those of us who've been working with kids for however many years before we have our own, like, 
oh my goodness, I hope I'm going to do this right. And then, and then your kid surprises you, right? Like, because, because they're also, and you know this about kids, kids bring their best behavior to group settings. And then they save their, they save all of their super meltdowny, like, you know, um, all of that good stuff for their most trusted caregivers. Exactly. And even in my years, I worked as a nanny for a number of years. And even in my years as a nanny, the, the children are not bringing their worst behavior to me as the nanny. They're still bringing it to their parents 100% of the time. So I had never really gotten the full strength dose. <laughs> and then and then I did. And I had my own, you have your own like overlay, like all those worries. Like I didn't worry. I certainly worried and cared for other people's children in, in absolutely with all of my heart. But the extra anxiety of like, you know, launching this child all the way through adulthood, it's just a little bit extra pressure and yikes. Yeah. Yeah, no, but you you hit it on the nails, taking it personally, because it's, you know, and you have, I know for me, I have, you know, the pressure of my elders or, you know, the rest of the family setting of, you know, why are you doing it this way? Well, you shouldn't be doing it that way or whatever. So, right. We could definitely talk about that. I did have one other thought about something you said a, a bit ago about the village is the other, because there's another piece of the village that's so important. Um, that's not about adult to adult necessarily support. It's about expectation. It kind of ties back to what we were talking about with expectations is that if you're parenting in isolation, your child is exhibiting a behavior that you don't understand. And especially in COVID when you can't even take your child to the playground, or maybe you can now, but at one point you couldn't, or in group settings to see like, are other kids doing this, right? Like that's the other really important part of a village is like you get to gut check the like, is this the normal that my kid's doing? Like tons and tons of parents don't have a background in child development. They don't necessarily know that what their kid is doing is developmentally appropriate. Right. Um, and so having the village to be like, oh yeah, my kid went through that phase too. Like it's so reassuring to parents to have that sounding board. Yeah. And, and when you say that, I also want to remind like our listeners that you also have gut feelings about your child and to really, really trust those 100%. Yes. Right. Because I think we are highly intelligent when it comes to that and that we don't necessarily have to Google everything. Yes, that, right. You know, <laughs> it's about like, uh, there's, there's something not sitting right with me. You know, even if you don't have that village, the other children to compare to, like if you feel something is, is up, you, you definitely need to uh, seek help. You, you, when I started talking about um, the elders, you said, "Oh, we could talk a lot about oh, that." What did yeah. you want to say there? Well, we did, yeah, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Um, well, it's 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 a sticky wicket um, because I mean, for elders or for other relatives, like I've certainly had worked with families who, you know, it's not an elder who's raising their eyebrow; it's you know their sister or their you know, whatever it could be a peer. Or even their partner. Yeah. Or their partner. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. So, I mean, partners are sort of a different discussion, but because it is, I like to say it's important for co-parents to don't, if you can't get on the same page, at least get in the same book, right? Like it doesn't have to be exactly the same and that children can tolerate some differences um, in approach, but that you can't be so far apart that you wouldn't even be in the same book. But that's sort of a little bit different than the, than the issue of like, if you and your partner are in the same book or even, even better on the same page, but you have family members or um, 
you know, elders, grandparents, et cetera, who are raising their eye, um, you know, there's, there's, I think a relationship based approach to cultivating understanding, um, should, is probably a good place to start. Um, because it's easy to get defensive, right? It's easy to get defensive and like, well, they don't understand or it's not their kid or however, however, whatever flavor of defensiveness, but it, it can be helpful to explain, right? And because like, like we said earlier, there are, there is science, you know, there are studies and, you know, this is a, this is a whole field of study of understanding child development and, um, many, many parenting approaches are evidence-based at this point. And, you know, it might just be, a, a matter of, uh, you know, appreciating, um, someone else's perspective, but then, you know, sharing why you're doing it the way that you're doing it. And in a way that's not defended, you know, when, when we get defensive, then it can raise hackles more, more than, um, if we can not, again, not take it personally so hard. Um, it is. Yeah. that's my, that's my first thought. I don't know. Do you have tips for that issue? Well, no, I, 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 I align with your, your thoughts on that is really about, you know, sharing that, that parenting is meant to, to evolve, right? That we, we were parented by our parents. I mean, I think they did the best they could with the knowledge and the tools that they had at, you know, their time and in whatever situation, and that, you know, we get to evolve and our children will evolve. Our children will let us know that, you know, we did several of things course, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just, that's just part of the, that's part of the journey. So, um, so, so again, like you say, you know, not to take it personally, but, but it's hard, you know, I have, you know, I have a, a situation where, where my son is right now, he's a 22 year old, uh, extreme sport athlete. Oh. Um, and, and it's wonderful to see him, you know, evolve in that and all that as, as stressful and scary can be for me. But, you know, I have, uh, you know, my father who's like, well, shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't encourage. And I was like, well, you know, it's, it's like, that's his passion. I'm not going to get in the way. <laughs> I was going to say, you're just still getting out of the way, aren't you? It, 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 exactly. And, and to me, you know, I, I totally understand and respect where he's coming from, but it's, it's sometimes it's true. It's hard to, to navigate that because you want your own parent support, you know, even, if I am, you know, 60, I still want my parents' support. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But, you know, in the long end, we, we end up doing what we think is right for our children. Yeah, so, right, right. and that's what matters and that our children are happy and following their dreams. So, right. And I think it can go both ways with the taking it personally, like some, you know, grandparents, I'll just say could, might be taking it personally that they're, child is is parenting differently right that that isn't a rebuff against or toward um the parenting that they had offered and so it, it can be a delicate conversation or you know i'm you know or maybe a note or you know just just somehow to to get out there to express the that it's not personal and and that and i love framing it as an evolution like and the no better do better quote like you know, it's not, 
and and you know sometimes it can be helpful to to tell a, a grandparent like the or if it's a an adult child to tell their parent you know the things that they did really appreciate most people have things they appreciated and things that they didn't appreciate about the parenting they received and you know maybe just a, a an honest conversation about that can kind of clear the air i know that might not be possible in every family but Right. And to maybe share like what they would appreciate them doing instead of, you know, what they what they're not liking um, or or even what they appreciate, you know, that they're doing with their children. So, yeah. Wonderful. Well, th- this has been delightful. And, and I just I just have one more uh, kind of personal question. And I know you've answered this a while back when you were on Be the Best Parent You Can Be, but I'm going to ask it again. Um, so I know you have a son who's what, a teenager now or maybe older? Yeah, he's 14. He just started high school. 14. Okay. So if you were to go back 15 years and give yourself some wise words, what would those be knowing all that you know today? Yeah. I mean, for me, the wise words would be about my own worry and anxiety, um, you know, that manifested as the shark music around my child's behavior and emotions. Like, dig into that. I would. I would, I would um, advise myself to cue into that a little earlier than I did um, so that I could have, have had that knowledge, <clears throat> excuse me, from the beginning. Right. Beautiful. Beautiful. And any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Oh, um, go easy on yourselves. Um, you know, in the, in the way that I, I just said, I wish I had had this information and, you know, I didn't. And I, I, I learned it when I learned it and it doesn't help to keep ourselves on the hook or to be unkind to ourselves. It's not good for ourselves and it's not good for our kids. Um, it, it doesn't help. And that kind of self-flagellation and, you know, I would just say, go easy. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for for your time today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me. It was delightful. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.